0: think a lot of the meaning of life for me is just the actual process of questioning what it is Mm -hmm. and the journey of figuring it out for a moment and thinking oh like you know at one point my life was really about meditation and self-exploration and then having some real life experience come along and and show you that there's this other part that you've missed you know so now a lot of my life is more about You know, I'm really aspiring to be a decent teacher. Mm -hmm. And I hope to build classrooms that are caring spaces. And so my life has, you know, gone from one to the next. And I think for me, the meaning of life is just being open to that constant flow of change and to addressing the new things as they come up and like learning from not being closed to one particular uh, way.
1: Hi guys, welcome back to Playground. Today I have with me a very special guest that I got to know with the IDS Fellowship. I have with me, Rose Titan. Rose, how are you today?
0: I'm great. Thanks for having me. How are
1: you? I'm good. Still like trying to balance just doing this podcast and like studying for the MCAT and everything, but I'm doing pretty well other than that. How's life in quarantine? How have you been handling that?
0: I've been enjoying certain parts of it. I think that it's been nice to have um more focused quiet time, but like everyone else, the uncertainty of the world and different things going on also weigh heavily. So it's been an it's been an interesting time balancing both parts.
1: Yeah, it is interesting to balance these things as like something That I found it is something I learned is time management and self-discipline is much more important because we don't have a schedule for us. We have to create a schedule for us.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree.
1: The question I want to start off this interview is, where where is home for you and where did you grow up?
0: So I grew up in a small town in Ontario, in Canada. And when I say small, I mean like really small, like one stoplight small. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, we have, I think our population's like 2,000 people, but like a lot of farmland and, you know, I was quote unquote in the village. So, you know, I was in town, but there's lots of people I grew up with who lived, you know, on large plots of land where their, their farms were. Just a very beautiful, like nature-filled experience, but small and quaint.
1: What did your parents do about it growing up?
0: My mom is a middle school English teacher, so for me, the education uh, focus didn't fall far from the tree. (laughs) And my dad is a software designer, so much more math and tech
1: oriented. Where did you go for university, and like, how did your journey bring you to Emory? And I wondered.
0: Yeah, so life in a small town as a child, like I never could have expected that I would end up in Atlanta, Georgia in a, you know, large metropolis in the Southern, you know, U.S. I think growing up in a small town, I had like limited experiences with city life. And so that was kind of attractive to me. So I went to college at Carleton University in Ottawa, which is still a relatively small city, but it was sort of a baby step, you know, into into that kind of cosmopolitan life. And then I moved to Toronto for my master's. Okay. So that was a much a, bigger jump. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about you? Did you grow up in a city?
1: So I grew up in Naperville. So Naperville is a suburb of Chicago. Gotcha. So I grew up the first seven years in Naperville, Illinois. And I spent one year in California. And then the rest of my life, I've been in Texas, Dallas, Texas. So I've been pretty much born with like the suburbs in the city. So I haven't like experienced a small town like yet.
0: Yeah. It's an interesting, you know, way of life. There are certain things that I absolutely adore about it and I miss, but I don't know after living in a city, if I could go back to small town life permanently.
1: What would you say, do you see like the big differences between like your hometown and Atlanta?
0: There are lots of things that are just different about small towns and big cities in general, but I think you know in big cities when you're not in a pandemic mm-hmm. you can you can go out and do a lot of different things you can go to movies you can go to museums you can eat at restaurants and in a small town life is much more quiet we you know we had maybe two restaurants we didn't have a movie theater or a mall or anything like that we had a grocery store and a pharmacy and just sort of basic needs were being covered so we had to create our entertainment. We had to do a lot more walking and driving to scenic sort of, you know, spots for a picnic. You know, I can't count the number of hours I just stared at the river mm-hmm. as a child. You know, that was, that was sort of the, the contours of what we could do. So I think there's lots more entertainment and that kind of stuff here in Atlanta.
1: I want to explore the creating your own entertainment aspect of it. So like, what were you curious about as a child? And like, how did you entertain yourself as a child living in that small town?
0: Yeah. So I was curious about everything as a child, but I think my passion as a, as a younger person was figure skating. So in a small town in Canada, you're going to have an ice rink, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's impossible that that's not like the cultural hub of the whole town. So I spent most of my days after school there, practicing. And then even in the summer, we drove to the city for me to continue skating where they had ice. So, you know, practicing and performing and being involved in that was huge. But I think that changed in high school. In high school, I became much more into reading and into ideas. And I started questioning my place in the world more, you know, I have this one memory of being on a school bus driving home, I think it must have been grade nine, and thinking of all the other kids who are on school buses, going home around the world and going about their lives. And I felt really small for that one, you know, blink second. And I, it really started this like question of what is the purpose of life? Where are we going? We all act like we're the center of the universe, but are we, what is this whole thing about? So, I think high school, I became a little bit more existential um, <laughs> and I had a lot of time to think about those things.
1: Uh, you brought up two interesting aspects I want to explore your childhood in. But first, I want to explore figure skating. Could you describe how you got involved in figure skating? Because I'm not familiar with Canadian culture. Like, this is something that every child did. Like, how did you get involved and in started practicing and then performing? And like, what was going in your head? Like, how did you feel?
0: Totally. So I started skating in 1992. I was four years old Wow! and I had just watched Christy Amaguchi, the American Olympic champion, you know, win gold, probably with my mom. And I mean, I was still like a baby, right? Four years mm-hmm. old, but my mom enrolled me in lessons. And totally, I think a lot of Canadians put their children in can skate, Like, which is like a skating program, or they do it through school. Like, we would go to the rink at gym time sometimes for skating. And my first experience, like, I thought I was gonna step on the ice and do like triple jumps, just like the people I saw on TV. But, you know, I spent most of the time falling and getting up again for the first few years. But then it became this huge part of my life. And You know, I hadn't skated for many years and a while back I got back on the ice and I remembered the beauty of it is that you feel like you're flying. You feel like you're like weightless and free. And, you know, that movement is just like, it's almost like a sacred thing to me. The experience is just, it's fun and you could express yourself. I mean, as a young kid, you're you're really expressing yourself and you're learning how to be sort of, you know, totally in the moment in a way that I didn't experience in, you know, other parts of life or school or sports or things like that.
1: Were you able to apply what you learned from figure skating to other aspects of your life right now? Like, do you see like that free motion that you express, like feeling free, feeling weightless, like in other creative aspects right now and like other activities you do now?
0: Absolutely. So I think there's two things with figure skating that mirror a lot in my life. Mm -hmm. So figure skating is something that you... You learn a lot of discipline and self motivation in. So all of that that freedom and that feeling of flying is there, and it's like the thing that motivates you to keep going. But day to day, you're taking instructions. You're learning how to do you know the same movement again and again, just slightly differently to make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as an academic, as someone who's you know dedicated my life now to being a student and a scholar and a researcher and a writer that that little bit of improvement daily, you know, chipping away at making something a little bit more perfect is something I learned how to do in figure skating and how to stay constant with it and to not give up. But then also that feeling of flying. I mean, I love meditation. I love prayer. I love dancing. And even in a way in my writing, you know, when you have put hours and hours into a paragraph and then you read it and it just sounds, it sounds exactly how you're imagining it in your mind. Like there's a, there's a free excitement to that too. So yeah, I think there's definitely parallels between that time and now.
1: Could you describe more of what, what you're studying as an academic, like what's your field of study and what have you studied throughout your universities?
0: Sure, so in undergrad I studied world religions and history. And then in my master's degree, I decided to focus on Islam and I worked on translating a medieval Arabic Sufi text. So, Sufis are like Muslim mystics, people who focus on meditation and the spiritual elements of of religion in different ways. And then, as, as a PhD student now, I work on Sufism, but with particular emphasis on women and gender and how Sufism has been practiced and thought about in those terms with special attention to gender and so i think i think the trajectory is sort of linear but also i've explored different parts of you know religion and
1: spirituality
0: throughout the years
1: so i want to go back to your high school days when you were feeling existential when you described that like when you were like in the bus and like imagining how many other students in different buses going to school at the same time i also felt that same experience And I did some Googling and I discovered a word, it's called Sondel, Mm S-O-N-D-E-R. And it's it's the realization that every single person around you has a complex life, as complex life as you all. And you're not the central universe, you're more of just like a little part to the bigger thing. And it's like Mm -hmm. very interconnected. So why did you just decide to study world religions in undergrad and what got you interested in like spirituality and that aspect of things? Was it this existentialist crisis and like introspective thinking or was it something else in high school?
0: I think it was definitely that. Um, mm-hmm. My parents were people who had uh, gone to India and studied meditation there for a period of time long before I was born and they had interests in world religions but I think in that high school moment I started really questioning how do other people make their lives meaningful how do they sort of construct their day to day and you know their image of what life means over the course of their whole lives so that it feels purposeful and fulfilling and beautiful and so I think the existential crisis was my own personal quest to
1: define that for myself what did you find out Like in in your journey so far, what did you find out is the meaning of life or like what do you think is the meaning of life or like the purpose of life right now from like your journey?
0: That's so interesting. I think a lot of the meaning of life for me is just the actual process of questioning what it is Mm -hmm. and the journey of figuring it out for a moment and thinking, oh, like, you know, at one point my life was really about meditation and self-exploration and then having some real life experience come along and, and show you that there's this other part that you've missed. You know? So now a lot of my life is more about, you know, I, I'm really aspiring to be a decent teacher mm-hmm. and I hope to build classrooms that are caring spaces. And so my life has you know, gone from one to the next. And I think for me, the meaning of life is just being open to that constant flow of change into addressing the new things as they come up and like learning from them, not being closed to one particular uh, way. So how about you? Have you found that for yourself?
1: I could relate to uh, basically everything you just said, but I, I think I'm still too young to like, like you said, like put a definition on meaning of life or purpose of life. I don't think I will find that definition or answer even like when I'm like on my dying bed, I, I don't think I will ever find it like true, like that's the purpose of life. You don't know what the purpose is until you don't have it anymore. Or like, it's very, very meta here.
0: Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I think there's some comfort in thinking that we know the purpose for sure. But for me and my life experience anyways, anytime I felt that kind of certainty, it's been challenged by something. And so I've had to just learn to be open to the possibility of not knowing Mm-hmm. and doing my best anyway.
1: It's, I think it's all about learning and adapting to new experiences and like finding these new experiences to better yourself. The next question I have is more of like a hypothetical question. So if you could go back and meet Younger Rose, what advice would Younger Rose give you right now?
0: You know, Younger Rose was a lot more audacious and spunky than current Rose. I feel like sometimes academic life you're constantly trying to say things properly and trying to have that discipline. And younger Rose was a little more freer, a little more sort of carefree in how she approached life. And I think younger Rose would say, don't take this so seriously. Have fun, you know, let every day be more ex- explorational and, you know, a journey, and don't have, you know, your goals and your sort of priorities constantly dictating things for you as clearly. Now, I think they both speak to each other, right? Maybe younger Rose needed more of that discipline too.
1: How are you having fun right now? So like, I know like younger Rose would say to have more fun. So how are you like balancing it out right now with academics and having fun and like doing stuff for yourself?
0: I took up painting a couple years ago and I'm not a very good painter at all, but sometimes when I've worked really hard, I just get colors and I I just allow myself the freedom to be creative and to have no goal in mind, no like plan of what I'm going to paint and what what I'm expecting to create. And some something in that freedom is really fun for me and other artistic things like that, whether it's, you know, painting or poetry or coloring or something like that. And I like to read more freely too. You know, instead of reading academic books, one of the most fun things for me is to read young adult novels and, you know, especially stories about young Muslim women and strong women in general, because I think there's something so freeing. Just like you said, you know, what would your younger self say to you now? There's something about those stories that is really empowering coming from younger voices. So yeah, those are ways that I have fun now. And thankfully, I can do them in quarantine.
1: (laughs) I wanted to explore more of the spirituality, your interest in spirituality, how that came in, like, how is, how is like, this is a question I had myself, like, what is the difference between like religion and spirituality? Like, I know like religion is more like traditions and like this, like Christianity, Islam, et cetera, but like spirituality is more like whatever works for you, I'm assuming, like, how do you like connect with, is it the universe? Like, what's, what's the differences and how do you like see those differences?
0: Sure. So as an academic, you know, a lot of these categories themselves are the products of like coloniality because mostly Christian scholars started this field of religion and used these words to divide up sort of more outer traditional actions from as religion from spirituality and the more inner parts of it. So sometimes I challenge myself to sort of let go of the categories and just sort of be as i am in the in that particular moment but i can't deny at the same time that you know i did become a muslim at one point in my life and i have practiced sufi meditation for you know about 10 years and that these things were inspired by all of my life experiences before that even though they took this really particular form in a religious and spiritual tradition and what inspires me to keep doing them I think that they offer that quiet space to go inside and to really feel and listen to your conscience, into your your gut, and to the somatic experience of being a human in a body and to connect that everyday sort of just being with the things I do in my life. So, you know, meditation for me and prayer for me they're they're sort of little gifts to quiet and really check in with myself. And whether or not that that maps me somewhere on the like religious spiritual sort of dichotomy, I I mean, I don't know where I fit there, but I definitely feel like some part of me genuinely believes that there's something bigger Mm -hmm. in this universe, something that we're all connected to and quieting my mind and quieting my worries allows me to feel that connection on some level and that's sustaining for me yeah
1: do you feel like when you meditate and you feel calm and peace is there any parallels to that when you were like when you were young and even in that small town like you went to the river and like you said you were like watching the river flow do you feel like any parallels and like do you think that's part of the reason why you were so certain like you like meditating because of that calm and peaceness Because it reminds you of that small town or am I just like saying something here?
0: No, totally. I mean, nature for me is where so many of the symbols that I meditate on come up, you know, the, the moon and the sun rising, you know, in the morning and setting in the evening, water flowing, fire. These are, these are symbols that I, I think about as I meditate and I don't think at, at the time as a preteen or a teenager that I realized I was meditating. I was just sitting by the river, but I definitely was starting that journey of, of learning how to, how to listen closely and how to feel through moments rather than sort of thinking compulsively about them. So, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think that that did sort of prefigure a spiritual life. And it even prefigured the way that I, that I think about it. Like for me, I could sit in meditation for an hour, but sometimes going for a walk and seeing birds and seeing beautiful trees and thinking about these other, these whole other realms, you know, like this, these birds have their own world. And it's sort of like that school bus yet again, where I'm thinking like there, there's so many layers to this world that we just don't consider day to day. So yeah, I think, I think it's all connected for sure.
1: And then I want to ask, how, how do you connect feminism with all of this? How do you connect like being a Muslim woman and like having that and studying that for your, for your PhD thesis? How do you, how do you connect all of that together with religion and spirituality?
0: So a lot of spiritual programs, teachers, a lot of what they're doing is they're giving you exercises and tools to condition yourself. It's just like figure skating, right? Mm-hmm. You're doing this one like movement over and over again, so that your muscles grow particularly in a way and the same thing spiritually. But as a historian of religions and a historian of ideas, we also know that a lot of these programs were built by men, and they were built to condition men and even elite men, right? And so a lot of their premises are sort of not necessarily helpful to women in a society that's patriarchal, in a society that that sort of has left women aside in various ways. So my interest is to explore like, what does it look like? How is it different when a woman is is the teacher? And when you know the, the exercises, the ways of thinking about life come through her experience of being a daughter and a sister, maybe a wife, maybe a mother. You know, or being a woman in this society or how how does this look different and how does it feel different in the body, in the spirit when meditation practices and prayers recognize that human beings carry the marks of oppression of all kinds, you know, wherever they go. And that healing that, you know, internally and communally is is uh an option you know a lot of a lot of more patriarchal iterations of religion don't necessarily address those things so you know i've met inspiring women throughout my life that are doing this in all kinds of ways and so my research yes and and my life in many ways are just sort of choosing to turn to them as teachers and mentors yeah
1: what have you found out about the differences between a man teacher versus a woman teacher teaching Spiritual practices.
0: Yeah, I think um, I think regardless of gender, if a person recognizes patriarchy for what it is and recognizes all of the you know systems of oppression that ha- cause real harm to people, and then they build their spirituality with that consciousness, whether no matter what, there there are different ways. So I think authoritarianism and sort of top-down approaches to teaching are are removed and community comes through as a greater sort of theme with a lot of these people. The idea that we can learn in a reciprocal way, teacher and student, uh, students together, students with teacher, rather than teachers being sort of on a pedestal as having all the knowledge and the students having nothing. And that follows, you know, Paulo Freire, a Brazilian scholar of education, you know, he talks about the banking model of education where it's assumed that teachers are sort of these these gods that know everything and students come to it with this emptiness that needs to be filled up with knowledge. And he says, no, that doesn't work. That just recreates oppressive dynamics. So if we can build our classrooms or our religious spaces so that everyone sees The other as the person they're learning from whether that's another student or a teacher yeah that's really that's really where my interest lies.
1: So I know you want to be a teacher and I know I know I know you're going to implement these ideas into your classroom yeah what kind of teacher (laughs) do you want to be like who do you want to teach what do you want to teach like what's your like ideal Called, what's your ideal classroom? What's your ideal like, students?
0: My ideal classroom is a place where all of my students and whoever comes to be a part of the classroom feels free to be themselves fully. And I don't necessarily know how to do that in every situation yet. You know, I'm a, a new aspiring teacher, so I'm sure that I'll, I'll learn a lot from that, from different experiences but i think i want to talk about religion i'm going to be someone who teaches you know islamic studies and religious studies intro to the quran to islam and gender and i think in our world today it's really important that people feel free to ask questions and to share their personal life experience in a classroom i mean it's really important that we rigorously read texts but it's also equally important that we make it meaningful to the lives that we're leading. So I I think that's that's part of how I hope to structure my classes in such a way that we reflect on them. We reflect on what we're doing personally as well as intellectually and scholarly.
1: I'm assuming you want you want to teach undergrads and like grad students like college level?
0: Yeah that's that's my hope. I I've worked with you in ideas and and I've had a chance to co-teach and teach in the university and the classroom is where I thrive it's where I feel most at home I love learning from the ideas fellows I love learning from my students and I think undergraduates especially and graduate students are just so alive with that thirst for knowledge and for that thirst to like learn about completely new Uh, and different realities and things. And so even if I'm teaching a course on religion, chances are the people in my classroom have all kinds of different life experience Mm -hmm. and backgrounds. And maybe they're in a course on sociology or on chemistry, God knows what, that they bring with them. And so I just love that experience of of exchange and co-learning for sure.
1: We're coming towards the end of the interview. And I wanted to ask... Just a couple of more questions. Uh, What is your favorite childhood movie or book? Because I know you town don't have a movie theater. So what is your favorite (laughs) childhood book and why?
0: I'm actually going to say a movie. Okay. So my favorite childhood movie is called The Cutting Edge and it's a, a movie that came out i think in the early 90s or the late 80s and it's about a figure skater whose career is like going down the drain and she needs a new figure skating partner and then this hockey player who you know was injured and had to retire like joins her and she has her own skating rink in her backyard <laughs> and they practice and it's going poorly but then they make it to the olympics and i absolutely have no good reason for why this is my favorite movie. It's not like a cinematic masterpiece. It's not, you know, um, amazing, amazing storytelling, but I can't even count the number of times that I watched it growing up and it just made me feel like alive and I was into it. So yeah, that, that's my that's my <laughs> pick.
1: <laughs> and then one uh, last question I have is, what is your favorite or like the most innovative or like the some spiritual or religious practice from any religion, from any... Sp- tradition. What is your favorite like, practice that some other religious people or spiritual people practice that you like loved to do and like why?
0: So something that I do or something that someone else does?
1: Uh, it could be something that you do or something that someone else does that you adopted.
0: In Sufism, there's a practice called muhasabah and muraqabah and it's sort of translated as self-accountability but it's really a process of self-reflection. Um, you know, back in the the medieval ages, it's, it's often written about as sort of taking oneself to task for moments that they were selfish in their life or something like that, you know, and sort of reviewing your day at every night and saying, you know, was I as good as I could have been in each of these ways. But today, uh, you know, a lot of my research and the people that I'm learning from are showing how there's ways that compassion can be brought into this practice And so one of the women who I study talks about like bringing into your mind and your physical awareness, the deep compassion within the universe, you know, within God, and then thinking about yourself and your actions in a very sort of quiet way in light of that compassion. And so it it opens the door for us to, to, to be critiquing ourselves or to be seeking to elevate ourselves and to refine how we are in the world but not in a in a way that hurts us or not in a way that's that's punitive you know with our souls so it's a very gentle way of trying to be better every day you know and trying to show up as our full self a little bit better a little bit more loving a little bit more you know responsible to our neighbor or you know to our community or to our family and for me, it is a quiet experience. It's an inward experience, but I love when inward meditation can be transformed into more kind action, into more generous action. So that's you know, murakaba and muhasaba for me are are just beautiful
1: practices. That that, that was that was a beautiful answer, and I think that's like a beautiful way to end this interview. I just wanted to comment that when you do the meditative practice, it helps you like become a better person every single day, like. Better your actions every single day it's like i saw stock like very clear connection back to figure skating Right, like you make your better moves every single day and like work on it every single day discipline has such a big impact on like both meditative practices and like really anything we do as an academic too and i think i think that's like a good stopping spot here and like To conclude this interview I'd like to say to our listeners if you enjoyed this interview please follow us on Spotify and rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and yeah we'll see you guys next time thank you